Thank you, worship team. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. Now, we began this series last week, this series within the series, Signs of the Times. And we are looking at the last days, the end of time, and what Jesus himself had to say about it in Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel is traditionally the oldest gospel, the original of the four. And uh, it's Jesus' earliest recorded sayings about these things. But we did establish last week, Matthew spends more time talking about these things. Luke in Luke 21 also covers the same discussion. John, for his gospel, he doesn't really go into it, but he wrote a whole letter about the last days called Revelation. You might have heard of it. It's the last book of your Bible. And it's, it goes quite extensively into what's going to happen in those days. Now, when we look at this topic of eschatology or the end times, and we begin to study it, well, we often come across things that we are unfamiliar with, things that maybe we haven't heard before. We have to stop and pause, and we need to do this regularly in our Christian walk. A few weeks ago, I talked about deconstruction and what that looks like and, and so forth, and we do that through the lens of Scripture, but so many times, especially when it comes to the last days, we begin to look at what the Bible actually says and we say, no, that can't be right because I remember this thing or that thing and this is what a pastor said to me years ago and this is what I heard in a Bible study and this is what I was taught in Sunday school and that's, that just doesn't seem to sit well with me. You remember those charts from the 80s and 90s that just laid out everything that was going to happen in the last days? You want to put the next slide up? That's one of those charts. Does that ring a bell for anybody? Look familiar? My pastor, when I was little, I mean four or five years old, was a man named Glenn Snodgrass. And Pastor Glenn was an awesome guy, but he, had, he loved that chart. Not that one, that's just, a, that's just an example. But it was about, if, if, if it started here, it ended all the way over here. And I remember as a little kid, Pastor Glenn just taking his Bible and walking back and forth through the chart and preaching the chart. And all I could think about when I was putting this message together was, what if the chart was wrong? I mean, so much was based on that chart. And there was so much that he was pulling from. And yes, it was based in Scripture. But when we look at the last days, we have to make sure what we are pulling out of it is found and grounded in the Word of God or it's meaningless. It doesn't matter what I heard it means. It doesn't mean, matter what I expected it to say. What matters is what did God really mean? What did he really say? When we were in Bible study on Wednesday nights, we try to answer these four questions as we, as we walk through the, the word of God. We say, first and foremost, what does the scripture mean? Not what does scripture mean to me? Not what, does, what do I want it to mean? But what is God actually saying here? The second question we have to tackle is, why should I care? What makes it so important? What's so vital about this passage? Why, does it, why was it included in the text? And, and third, how do I apply that to my life? Where do I go from here? You know, what, is, what do I do with this now that I understand this biblical truth? And the fourth and most important question is how is this taking me into a closer relationship with Jesus Christ? Because all scripture points us to Jesus, does it not? Is that what he said? 
You read Moses and the prophets, but they testify of me. That's what he said. And we know the gospels reveal him. Acts, he's preached. The epistles, they explain him. And Revelation, he's expected. We believe all of that. We know that. So when we look at scripture that talks about his return, we need to be asking that question, does, does the Bible really say what I think it says, or, or is this my own thing? And I don't mean to say that like, did God really say, because we all know who talks like that, right? But we have to ask ourselves, what does God actually say? And revisit scripture and understand that and see how it harmonizes with the rest of God's word. Now, if you will, stand with me. We're going to read this morning out of the word of God, beginning in verse 14. It says... But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and the one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house, and the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his garment. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But as for you, see, I have told you everything in advance. You may be seated this morning. That's the word of God. It's not the word of Jeff. That's not the word of faith assembly. It's not the word of the assemblies of God. Those are the words of Christ. Do we believe that? Say amen. 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 I've titled this message, very original title, Signs of the Times, part two. It's like every Star Wars movie is called Star Wars, right? But you always got those subtitles. So, Signs of the Times, Part 2, Abominations and Tribulations. It's hard to read this text and say, man, we're going to have the happiest of endings, right? This is just the, this is the Disney version of the gospel that I fell in love with so many years ago. No, it doesn't sound like that. This does not sound like sunshine and rainbows and puppy dogs and daisies. It doesn't sound all that good to me. And yet we know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that Christ is coming for his church. And if you get nothing else from this message, I hope you understand this. I hope you write this down. Though there are tough times ahead, Christ prepares his church. We do not face this blindly. What's coming is coming. We cannot stop it. That is under the sovereignty of God, and yet he prepares his church. Jesus is continuing in our text. He's having this dialogue with Peter and Andrew and James and John, the the first four disciples, and they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, and they're looking across at the Temple Mount, and he's been talking to them, and and they said, you know, when is this going to happen? What sign should we expect, Jesus? Give us, give us a clue as to when you're going to rise up as that conquering king and overthrow Rome and, and take your rightful place. And Jesus looked at them and he said, see to it that no one deceives you. In fact, the first thing out of his mouth, that word see, we covered this last week, watch. Watch out. 
Pay attention. Don't stick your head in the sand. Don't be afraid. Don't try to fight back, but just watch. Watch as everything unfolds. In our text today, Jesus makes it very clear there are tough times ahead. Now, you, you, you may read this and say, well, that's talking about the big tribulation. We are not guaranteed a life without tribulations in this life before everything else. We're not guaranteed an easy life. In fact, if you remember last week, we were very, we were very much guaranteed the opposite of that. Jesus never tells his followers, be ready for an easy life. He says, be ready to go or be ready to suffer. We see that very clearly in our text. But either way, whatever is coming, he says, but I'm going to prepare you. He prepares his church. He gives us all we need to know because we believe scripture is sufficient. Because we understand who inspired it. We understand who spoke it. It's the very word of God, the very breath of God, 2 Timothy 3 tells us. And if it's really the word of God, then it's going to prepare us with all we need in that time. And so we look back at verse 14, Jesus' words. He says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. This passage has given theologians, Sunday school teachers, pastors, Bible study guys, whatever you want to call it, it has given them fits over the last 2,000 years. Abomination of desolation, what is Jesus possibly talking about here? This is so confusing. What is this? There have been five historical answers at least, and we're going to cover some of those this morning. But we have to be very careful in looking at Jesus' words and understanding the truth. Jesus is actually quoting Daniel chapter 11 here. If, you've, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, this might be a passage you remember. It says, mighty, it's Daniel eleven thirty one. Mighty forces from him will stand, profane the sanctuary fortress, and abolish the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. But there's more to it than that. We have to walk kind of backwards through Daniel to really get an idea and decipher what he is talking about. Back in chapter 12 of Daniel, it says, But from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Okay, what? Earlier than that, he said, Then I heard a holy one speaking, that's an angel, and another holy one, that's another angel. They said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes desolation so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? And then, of course, there's this really popular verse in Daniel, and it says, And he will make a firm covenant that he is referencing the person we call the Antichrist, and he's going to make a firm covenant, that's a strong treaty, with the many, and most scholars believe that's referring to Israel, with the many for one week or seven years. But in the middle of that week, he'll make a sacrifice, or he'll make sacrifice and grain offerings cease, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. All of these passages are pointing to us, they're, they're telling us of future events that are going to happen. Now there are some who believe what, Daniel, what Daniel's referring to are events that have happened already, and we'll mention those. 
But when we read this and we understand it, this is definitely pointing a picture or, pointing, or, or painting a portrait of the man Paul calls the man of lawlessness, who we refer to as the Antichrist. Paul refers to him in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. You might have caught that 1,290 days. That's around how long? Three and a half years. And if you have ever studied the end times or, or looked deeply at it, or maybe you were in our Revelation class a couple of years ago, you know that three and a half times two is seven, and there's a seven-year tribulation coming that we, we believe will take place. And that starts when he makes a strong covenant with the many. That's what kicks off the seven-year tribulation. Not the rapture, not the disappearance of the church, not signs and wonders in the sky, when the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel for seven years. Because in the middle of that, that's when the abomination of desolation will occur. We have to understand that sacrifices, and it talks quite a bit about sacrifices in Daniel's passage that Jesus is referring to, they ended in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. Israel has not been continually making sacrifices, at least not publicly. And then maybe there's some guy in his backyard slaughtering a goat we don't know about. But sacrifices ended when the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. And we can tell from the way Jesus is talking about Daniel's passage that there's a future event where sacrifices will begin again. And after that, there's going to be an end to those sacrifices with the abomination of desolation. And that lines us all up for what's coming. In Daniel's day, the temple was in ruin, if you recall. He was in exile. It wasn't until a man named Ezra rebuilt the temple. We talked about this last week. He rebuilt the temple, sorry, a few weeks ago. 20 AD, Herod began to refurbish the temple. He wanted to make it twice the size of Solomon's original designs. But Rome destroys the temple in A.D. 70. So what Daniel is referring to and what Jesus, therefore, must also be referring to is a future Jewish temple that's going to be built in Jerusalem. Jesus quotes Daniel so clearly, we have to come to that conclusion. But this is where things begin to get murky when we look at this stuff. Because everybody wants to try and figure out what the abomination of desolation is. You ever notice when Scripture doesn't make sense, rather than relying on what Scripture tells us, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to God, we try to say, nope, they belong to me, and I'm going to figure them out. You ever notice that? People love to do that. Oh, no, this Scripture doesn't make sense. Well, let me tell you what I think it means, and that's the truth. And that's what you need to believe. No, we need to understand there are some things we are not going to know until the day they happen. There are some things that are going to pop up as we go, and we're going to go, oh, that's what the Bible was talking about. That was what he was warning us about. That's what he was preparing us for. And yet, people still try to wedge things in. In 167 B.C., a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, that name's a mouthful, he takes a giant sow into the temple and he sacrifices this pig to Zeus. He desecrates the temple. And there are those who will say, looking backwards in time, that Daniel was looking forwards in time, Jesus was looking backwards, and that's the event that happened. 
That's not the event that happens. Look at the verbiage that Jesus uses. He's clearly talking, you will see. It's a future event that's coming. When you see, not did you see or did you hear. He desecrated the temple, that Antiochus fellow, but that's not the event we're looking for. Around the time Jesus was telling his disciples about this, the Roman Emperor Caligula was planning to set up an image of himself inside the temple. Now, some scholars, some people will be a little lazy in their history and they'll say, well, you know what? He did set it up. No, he did not. The Senate said, hey, you know what? Caligula, maybe we don't want to upset those Jewish guys right now. We really don't want to deal with a revolt inside our own empire. So maybe, maybe don't tick them off by putting your own statue in there and telling them to worship that. We're going to have a problem. So Caligula relents. He never actually sets up this image of himself for worship. Towards the end of his life, he wanted to do it again. And they, they said, well, let's just pretend like we're going to do it and let Caligula die. And that's what happens. It never actually was built. Another theory is that in 67 AD, the Zealot Party, how many of you have ever heard of the disciple named Simon the Zealot? Yeah, he was part of the Zealot Party at one point. And in 67 AD, his former buddies, they take over the temple. And they make a man by the name of Phinehas, the priest, the high priest. They establish him and they say, you're going to lead Israel religiously. And guess what? Phinehas was horribly underqualified and not very good at his job. And since it wasn't 2023 where we just canceled him on social media, they killed him in the temple, desecrating the temple. It's now a place of bloodshed, a place of murder. It's not a place of worship. And so some will say, well, that, that's the abomination of desolation. No, it wasn't. This wasn't done by a single leader. It was done by a mob. So we can understand that's not it. Others will try to say when the Roman general Titus destroyed and burned down the temple, that that was the desecration of it. No, Jesus is talking about setting something up, not burning it down. And Titus, by the way, did not enter into the area that was the sanctuary until everything was ash. So we cancel that out as well. And to quote Sherlock Holmes this morning, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. So the only thing we can really understand is that this is a futuristic event in a rebuilt Jewish temple. The abomination of desolation, the Greek meaning there is a detestable thing of ruin and devastation. It has to be something, and I think Daniel makes it clear, it is something that is carried out by the actual Antichrist in a rebuilt Jewish temple. And Mark adds something for us, for you and for me, not for Peter, James, John, and Andrew who are sitting there. Mark adds a little message to let the reader know they, those four men were not going to see this. He said, Jesus didn't say this, by the way. Mark wrote this in his gospel for our benefit, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let the reader understand. You think Jesus was talking to the disciples and just, hold on a second, guys. Mark, you got that, right? Right? That, no, that's not what happened. Let the reader understand. It's for our benefit. He's telling us this is for a future generation of Christians who are going to still be around and see these things take place. Now, what it will look like, we don't really know. 
Maybe, maybe the Antichrist is going to pick up where Caligula left off, and he is. We do know he's going to make an image of himself that talks and possibly walks, and we all look at AI technology and go, hmm, right? I've heard that theory a lot recently. Pastor, you think AI is the Antichrist? No, I think the Antichrist is a person, but it could have something to do with that. I don't know. By the way, I don't know everything. Hey, just for the record, if some people ask on the, this Q&A, it, I really don't know all these things, but I, I can look at Scripture and draw a good conclusion. And I think we all can do that. Perhaps the Antichrist is going to pick up where Antiochus, what's his name, left off, and he's going to ride a pig into the temple, and he's going to sacrifice it. How many of you have read the Left Behind series? You remember that? Kirk, not Kirk Cameron movies. Okay, this happens after those movies stopped. In the books, Nikolai Carpathia, their antichrist figure, who's a fictional guy, doesn't really exist, I mean, as that, that's their version, he does this very thing. He rides a pig into the temple and sacrifices it. But we don't know. We don't know exactly what it'll look like. We know it will desecrate the temple, and when he is done, he is setting himself up, the antichrist, as not just a god to be worshipped, but the god to be worshiped. Jesus says, when you see, it will happen. The temple is going to be rebuilt, and if you haven't heard, Israel's ready to go. If you don't pay attention to those things, you really should. They've got all the material set up. They're just waiting for the land, and they're waiting for the red heifers. By the way, many of you have asked me about the significance of the red heifers. If you've not paid attention, they've got those comes from Numbers 19. This is the statute of the law which Yahweh has commanded, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel that they take to you a red heifer without blemish, in which is no defect on which a yoke has never been placed, and they've got five. You read on in Numbers, it's actually a sacrifice that purifies the camp, that purifies the nation of Israel, so that the sacrifice can begin. So the temple can be built and pure and, pure and ready for, for the sacrifices. Now the Mishnah tells us that if there are two black hairs found on one of those cows, it's not worthy. They got to start all over. But as it sits right now, they have two years left of examining those cows. And then they get to building. And when it happens, Paul says, then that lawless one will be revealed. There'll be no doubt left as to who this man is or what he represents or where he's leading the world. And Jesus says, and in that time when he does this act, those who are in Judea must flee. That word flee basically means to run like a criminal. They are, they are fugitive in that moment. And Jesus says, go to the mountains. Why go to the mountains? Because the cities aren't safe. Remember last week? Brother will betray brother to death. Father is child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. There is nowhere else to go but to hide in the wilderness. Well, pastor, I got news for you, brother. We don't got to worry about it because I'm going to be raptured. Hallelujah. Okay, that's fair. I even agree with that. But just because 
we're not here for the hardest of times, it doesn't mean we're not going to experience hard times. It doesn't mean we won't experience tribulation of some sort or another. But Christ still warns us of these things for a reason too. And that's likely because there are those possibly here in the church building today, possibly watching online, who will not be raptured. There may be those who are listening and watching who are going to be left behind. What do they do? Who prepares them? Who talks to them about these things? Well, I don't think Christ told us because we don't need to know about it. He told us for one reason or another. And in any case, if you're hearing me and you're taking notes, it's possible those could be the very things that lead a future generation when they find them. Grandma's study guide or, or dad's notes from the sermon. And these might be the only Bible left in the home at some point, you understand. It's an understatement to say there are tough times ahead, but still Christ prepares his church. Verses 15 through 16 say, And the one who's on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of the house. And the one who's in the field must not turn back to get his garment. In that moment, the Antichrist is completely, truly revealed beyond the shadow of a doubt. And in that moment, Jesus says, make haste, run, flee, get out of town, don't stay put, go. Head to the mountains, don't turn back, don't get anything. In the houses of Jesus' day, if you remember way back when the story of the paralytic, when the people brought their friend to Jesus to be healed and they couldn't get in the house, what did they do? They went up on the roof. And they let him down through the roof. Remember that? How were they able to get on the roof so easy? I guess three, four men at least carrying a fifth. Not easy to do when you just got a couple of step ladders. You see, the top of the roof was a place for people to go and relax in the cool of the day. They'd go up and they would sit and they'd look at the stars. And they'd, you know, a husband and wife could sit and rehash their day together. And, and that's what they would do. And Jesus says, if you're up there relaxing, don't even go back in the house to grab anything. Just go. For the one who's in the field, don't go back and get your garment. Don't go back and get your cloak. Remember the story of blind Bartimaeus. The cloak is the most important garment a man has. And he might take it off so he's a little more flexible in the work field. And if you get the news, don't go back to get it. Run. Go to the mountains. Jesus says, you better do this. And we're sitting here today and we're saying, gosh, Lee, how, how in the world could these guys on a rooftop and somebody in a field get uh, their hands on information about something happening right around the world? And I'm waving my cell phone in the air for those who aren't paying attention or listening on the podcast. When I was a kid, when I was about 25 years ago, I had that same question. Because in my study, in my Sunday school class, we were talking about these two men in Revelation. Revelation says those from the people and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit the dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. How's the whole world going to look at the dead bodies of these two guys? I asked a guy named Earl. And Earl looks at me dead in the eye. He goes, satellite television. Netflix buried satellite television years ago. We've got television in our pockets. It's so easy to get that news now. I'm not saying technology is the Antichrist, but it is helping pave the way 
We're seeing it. Here we are. That's the world we live in now. And Christ told us because he prepared the church. He knew, he knew about these things long before Steve Jobs walked on a, on a stage and unveiled an apple. He knew about this and he knew what it would lead and what it would mean for his church. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Woe is often a word of judgment or condemnation. We read Jesus in Matthew 23. He pronounces woe over the scribes and Pharisees. He calls them out for their hypocrisy. And he, he, he pronounces judgment on them. Not here. Woe is a word of pity. It's deep sadness. See, Christ has compassion on the pregnant woman. Compassion on those who are nursing babies. Because in this time, they are the most vulnerable. They are the ones in need of protection. You see, Jesus knows something about persecution. Even though he has not yet gone to the cross, he, being God, has seen persecution over thousands of years take place. And he knows in times of persecution, the most vulnerable are children. And as mothers of newborns, they're also the most vulnerable. Richard Wormbrand speaks of this in his book, Tortured for Christ. He, he talks about how his own son, while he and his wife were put in concentration camps in communist Romania, how their son Mikhail had to, uh, Mikhail, sorry, had to uh, live on the streets like a beggar at the age of nine because mom and dad were Christian. He speaks of pastors who would not give up the names of their parishioners. Those who would faithfully attend their church would not give up the list of names. And so they would bring in their sons or their daughters and do unspeakable things to them before their eyes. Jesus knows what happens to babies in times like this. He knows the words of Hosea. They will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces. Their pregnant women will be ripped open. Common practice in such savage times. And there are savage times coming, church. He warns of the pain the vulnerable will feel. And our families will suffer from our persecution in those days. And yet even still, our Lord prepares his church. He says, but pray it may not happen in the winter. Very powerful passage right here. Very powerful words. Jesus speaks some of the most powerful words in the English language. He says, but pray. This is not a suggestion. It is a command. Pray. He's taught us how to pray. He's modeled prayer for us. Pray for the Lord to be merciful. Pray that it may not happen in the winter. In Israel, the winter season is a rainy season. The kids are taking notes. It's a rainy season. Food is harder to come by. Streams are harder to cross. Winter is also a time of rest for those in an agricultural society like Israel was at that point. You've been working all summer. You've been working all fall. The harvest is in, and now it's a time to rest in the cooler weather. Even still, pray. We may not be here. Earlier I said this. You're absolutely right. We may be raptured. We may be long dead, but our brothers and sisters, our children, our grandchildren, our grandchildren's grandchildren, whoever it may be, 
They may come to Christ long after this great disappearance or, or whatever happens. They may understand in that moment, I need to choose Christ. So pray for them. Their journey will not be safe. Someone asked me earlier this week, how does this work? The salvation thing, how does it work? Because I feel like I'm, I'm under God's wrath. And I said, well, we're either under the blood of Christ or we are under his wrath. It's one of those two things, so we must pray. When Jesus instructs the disciples how to pray, he begins with our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is how he begins to wrap it up. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from, e from the evil one. Well, that sounds like prayer for a journey, doesn't it? That almost sounds like the prayer of somebody who's on the run, somebody who's fleeing danger. It's not just a prayer for now, it's a prayer for then. It's timeless, but pray. In his word, he prepares our minds. In prayer, he prepares our souls. But pray. Tough times are ahead. And he prepares his church. Verse 19. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. This is referring to a time period called the Great Tribulation. Now, there is the seven-year tribulation, but that second half, that second three and a half years, that is what is typically referred to as the Great Tribulation. It's referred to in uh, Revelation 7. Um, John's talking to an angel, and he says to John, he says, These are the ones who come out of the Great Tribulation, and they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There will be Christians around in that time. Christians who are persecuted during that time. It may not be us. We may be raptured. We may not. That's the thing about eschatology. We might be wrong about that. We have to be open to that. I believe it. I believe there's going to be a rapture of the church. But if there isn't, you know what Christ says? Be ready. Be ready to go or be ready to suffer. And either way, he prepares us to be ready. He challenges us. He encourages us. And like I said, there will be those who find grandma's Bible or dad's old study guides, those who will rise up and those who will face the tribulation. The Greek word there for, for tribulation is thalipsis. And it means distress or affliction, a time of pressing. It'll be a time of oppression for all who believe in Yahweh God, and especially those who believe in his son, Jesus the Christ. It's not just a spiritual oppression, but a physical oppression, mental oppression, social and economic oppression. It'll be a time like the world has never seen before, not since the beginning of the universe, not since creation. Those people of Noah's day will look on and say, well, we didn't have it that bad. Sodom and Gomorrah will say, I'm glad we missed that. The Canaanites, the Philistines, the Ninevites, they'll look back on this time and they'll cringe and they'll say, thank you, Lord, for your mercy. The people of Noah's days, they faced God's wrath, but it was over in a day. Sodom burned in an instant. The enemies of Israel had a choice to fight or run, and they were probably slaughtered on the battlefield, their nation overtaken by someone else. But when it was done, it was over. It was quick. The great tribulation will last three and a half years, and even that is a mercy of God. 
Yet they did not repent of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor of their sexual immorality, nor of their thefts. God continually, we look at the, we look at the last days and we say, oh, that's just so hard and so horrible. But do you understand that's God's mercy? He's pouring out his wrath upon the earth, but he's saying, but do you see, I've already told you I was going to do this. And all you have to do is repent. All you have to do is turn from your wickedness. And yet they will gnash, those who, those who will curse God, gnash their teeth. The word for sorceries, I think that's a very interesting fact. It's actually the Greek word pharmakon. It's where we get pharmacy today. Patty knows she's a drug dealer professionally. She, for those who are listening, she works at Nucara Pharmacy. Those watching online, she is not really a drug dealer. Well, yeah. But that word pharmacone, it's hallucinogens. It's a drug that people would use in sorcery. They would take it, try to see visions and have knowledge of the future events. Do we see this today? People taking, I know who the Jets quarterback is, by the way, and I know that recently he came out in favor of these things, hallucinogenic drugs. Kind of makes you want to not cheer for the guy. A few years ago, there was a guy on a podcast talking about smoking this drug called salvia and only lasts 10 minutes, this drug. But you have incredible psychedelic experiences to the point this man said he lived a whole nother life for what felt like three years. Would get up, go to work at a job he didn't have in real life, go home to a wife he didn't have, kids he never met, and go to bed. For three years this happened in his life and it only existed really for 10 minutes. Think about that. When where the whole world is falling apart, when Meteors are falling from the sky. A third of the moon, a third of the sun's blocked out. And people want to die, but they can't even die. That's what Revelation tells us is coming. You think they wouldn't want to use some pharmacone, some pharmaceuticals to appease that pain? To try and escape for three years of their life? That's just 10 minutes long here. But man, I got away from it all for a while. Do you see? Jesus is very clear Church, the days are coming. And he's referring to the bold judgments, by the way, of Revelation 16. Men are scorched with fierce heat. They blaspheme the name of God, even though they're, they know where it's coming from. They blaspheme him. Fifth angel pours out his bowl. Everything becomes so dark, they gnaw their tongues in pain. They blaspheme the God of heaven because their pains and their sores but yet they don't repent of their deeds. Huge hailstones, about a talent each, came down from heaven upon men, and the men blasphemed God because the plague was extremely severe. These things are coming, and yet people don't repent. And even still, Christ, well, he prepares his church. Verse 20. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Unless the Lord. That's a cry of mercy. We read again and again about the pain and suffering that's coming, and yet there is still mercy in our God. He is still love. 
He is still giving them time. And yet, like we've seen, they don't. They worship the beast. The church receives his mercy. The days are shortened. That word for shortened is echolobosin, and it literally it is used as a way to describe the docking of a dog's tail. So if you've got a dog like I do who has a docked tail, you know that thing's usually this long and violently shaking, much shorter, right? Much shorter. Unless the Lord amputated those days, cut them short. Those who would choose their own lives, choose their own idols, they will not know that hope. Yet there's mercy to be had in Christ Jesus. There's grace to be had in Christ Jesus. God, in his love, he shortens the days to only three and a half years. And he does this for those who love him. The world will wage war against the Lamb, Revelation 17 tells us. The Lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those who are with him are called the elect and faithful. That's who Jesus is referring to in his words here. This is the sovereign will of God on display. His love, his grace, his mercy for all to see. And yet even then, people will refuse and reject him. And then if anyone says, you behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. If anyone says, here's Christ, here's Jesus, no, 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 he's over there. Well, the subtle thing for us to understand is he is telling the disciples that at some point he's going to have to leave in order for these people to have a reason to say he's back, right? He's giving them the gospel right there, and they don't pick up on it. They're focused on the coming kingdom. But pretty shortly in Jesus' life, he's going to die. He's going to be buried. He's going to be resurrected. And people are going to say later in later times, here's the anointed one. Here's the Messiah. Come look over here. Here he is. This is a lure, by the way, to try and get the, the vulnerable, the gullible, the naive believer who does not know any better to catch them by surprise, to arrest them, to kill them. Because an actual mature believer would understand they will know the day Christ returns. False Christ, false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. We know, it's, we know it is possible because he already said back in verse 6, many will come in my name saying I am he and will mislead many. Many will be deceived. And church, many are deceived. How else do these men buy private jets and stay in hotels that cost $25,000 a night? David Wilkerson said these are the type of men who will take a widow's last $5 so they can buy a $5,000 dog. Oh, but signs and wonders follow them. Who cares? That should be the first red flag. What gospel do they teach? What message do they preach? Beware of the false prophets, he told us in Matthew 7, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Not by their actions, meaning their signs and wonders. How do they treat people? How do they talk to... Who, what's their ministry look like when the camera is not on? These men are wicked and they are legion. When the Antichrist and his prophet arise and they perform miracles, church, I tell you this from the bottom of my heart, get out of the way of the charismatics because they will trample you to the ground so they can worship at his feet. 
That's why I say we are not charismatic, we're Pentecostal. We don't want the gifts for the gift's sake. We want Pentecost because we want to be empowered for building the kingdom. No, when the real Messiah comes, there is no doubt. There's no need for a human messenger on that day. On that day, heaven opens, and behold, a white horse, and he who sits on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Messiah will reveal himself to his disciples, and he prepares us for that day too. But as for you, see, I've told you everything in advance. But as for you, watch. He has told us. For the listener, for the reader, Christ says, watch, see. He's told everything in advance. He's given us his word. His scripture is sufficient. He does not leave us unprepared, not one bit. Jesus said to them, see to it that no one deceives you. Be on guard. Be in his word. Exercise discernment. Watch. Stand your ground and be ready. Because tough times are ahead, but Christ prepares his church. Church, this is not an easy teaching. People we love, people we have prayed for, wept over, constantly witnessed to, shared our faith with, People we desperately want to see come to Christ, they will harden their hearts and continue to gnash their teeth and blaspheme him. And they will be the ones who have to live through those last days if they're soon. And I believe they're soon. Christ does not tell us it will be easy, but yet he prepares us for it. Today we're going to do something a little different as we close. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. Every one of us, everyone in this room has a loved one who does not know Christ. A friend, a co-worker, family member. You know somebody who does not follow him and love him with all their heart or submit their life to him. I'm going to ask the worship team, or just Patty, if you will, to come back and just play softly. And I want you to pray for the person. If you're, sitting, if you're standing by yourself, like, like Alan here, find somebody to stand next to. Pray for the person beside you. Pray for their loved ones. Pray for those in their sphere of influence, their workplace, their friends. Pray for them. Pray Not just praying for your family, but pray for those around you as well. And when we're done praying, I want you to look at the person to your left and the person to your right, and I want you to challenge them with these words. Now go take them to Christ. Church, you are the light of the world. That's what Jesus told us. You're the witness. You're the one to go and make an influence in these lives. So when you're done, go give them Jesus. When you walk out of this building today, I know we have a meal and, and time of fellowship, and that's great. I, but when you walk out, you enter the mission field. You enter your ministry. So pray for one another today. And when it's over, challenge them. Challenge the person beside you. Give them the gospel. Bring them to church. And when we're done, we'll, we'll worship together with one more song and, and we'll close a prayer of dismissal. Pray for the person beside you today.
Jesus is the 